This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful and frigid downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin is projected to end its current budget cycle with a $3.8 billion surplus. With the surplus comes decisions on what to do with this extra cash. Both parties celebrated the news. Democratic Governor Tony Evers mentioned in a statement that Wisconsinites, quote, need relief now, end quote, as they face recent inflation. Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew, a Republican from Oostburg, also celebrated the news, but plans to focus on further tax cuts instead of spending surplus dollars. The Legislative Fiscal Bureau determined that the surplus was a result of a $2.5 billion increase in estimated tax collections, a $33.1 million increase in non-tax departmental revenues, and a $340 million decrease in spending. Frack sand company Meteor Timber is asking the Wisconsin Supreme Court to grant a permit to build a facility in Monroe County. The justices have not yet decided whether they will hear the case. This move marks the latest legal challenge after a six-year effort to build a facility on 16.25 acres of wetlands in the state. The out-of-state company was most recently denied a permit by a state appeals court in December. The appeals court sided with environmental advocates and the Ho-Chunk Nation, ruling that there was insufficient information regarding the project's environmental impact when when the permit was first granted. The Wisconsin legislature had a busy day at the Capitol with votes on bills dealing with COVID-19 vaccination requirements, critical race theory, and even a constitutional convention. In total, around 80 bills were discussed. Republicans in the Wisconsin Assembly approved a bill that would prevent government entities from creating COVID vaccination passports. The Assembly approved a similar bill that required employers to allow proof of a previous coronavirus infection as an alternative to vaccination. The Wisconsin Senate sent another pair of bills to Governor Evers that prohibit teaching students and training school staff on concepts such as systemic racism and implicit biases. Evers is expected to veto both sets of bills. The legislature didn't stop there, though. In a resolution passed by the state Senate, the chamber expressed support for a convention to make a variety of changes to the federal constitution. The move caused bipartisan opposition, but still had enough votes to be passed. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission filed an equal pay complaint today against the Verona Area School District. The complaint refers to two instances where the agency alleges the district paid male staff members more than similarly qualified female staff members. The first instance occurred in June 2019 when the district hired a male special education teacher for a salary of over $77,000. Ten female special education teachers were paid between three dollars to $16,000 less during that same school year and were hired between 1994 and 2005. The complaint also claims that during the 2020 to 2021 school year, a male school psychologist was paid $87,000, while a female school psychologist was paid about $70,000. All of these staff members hold a master's degree. Two female teachers and the female psychologist hold a national board certification, while neither male staff member holds these same certifications. And now for today's pandemic numbers. There were 5,768 confirmed COVID-19 cases in Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the seven-day average for the state to 9,781 cases per day. The percent of positive tests dropped today with 24.6% of tests coming back positive over the past week, which is a drop of about 25% from yesterday. There were 88 confirmed deaths from the virus reported across the state yesterday, making for a seven-day average of 39 deaths per day. 
Across the state, 63.1% of people have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Here in Dane County, there were 694 new cases reported yesterday and two new deaths. 81.8% of people in Dane County have received at least one dose of the vaccine. And now on to today's top stories. Today, a local project that works to get free books into the hands of kids across Dane County announced a new partnership with a certain country star. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout has has more. Before he passed away, my daddy told me that the Imagination Library probably was the most important thing I'd ever done. Now, I can't tell you how much that meant to me because I created the Imagination Library as a tribute to my daddy. That's country star Dolly Parton, who is joining up with the Madison Reading Project to get books into the hands of every child under the age of five in Dane County. The Madison Reading Project is a nonprofit that began in 2014 and has since delivered over 250,000 books. The new partnership with Dolly Parton's Imagination Library aims to give the project more reach across Dane County, covering some of the costs of logistics and distribution of books. Rowan Child is the executive director and founder of the Madison Reading Project, says that the extra support makes purchasing and shipping the books much more affordable. While she could not give me exact numbers, Childs says that the Madison Reading Project provides around two to three dollars per child per month towards the project, while Imagination Library provides the rest of the money. The Madison Reading Project will also be in charge of local outreach and signing up local families to the program. The project offers a wide range of new books available for kids, from hardcover picture books for infants to fiction and nonfiction books aimed at middle school kids at a higher reading level. Childs says that there is a variety of ways the project gets books to kids. The ways that we get them out could be through their community partners. So those are all different kinds of school districts, social workers, food banks, after-school programs. Um, We also have a little free library program. Mostly during the warmer months, we are also out and about with our Big Red Reading Bus, going to all kinds of public events. And then we also have individual requests that we often will help with that come into the book center. So those could be from teachers or parents as well. The Madison Reading Project will continue to do all the programs they already have, but will now include sending books through the mail. The new partnership looks to get kids under the age of five one free book every month. Dolly Parton's Imagination Library first launched in 1995 and has so far given away over 172 million books to children across the world. Child says that the projects are both excited to be working together. We're absolutely thrilled to be working with the Dolly Parton Imagination Library program. We feel like our missions align really nicely from the very beginning. It's For us, it's always been about encouraging kids to read and to find the love of reading. And Dolly Parton's mission is very similar to that. So it's nice to see how these organizations will be able to work together and hopefully be able to run this program for a very long time. The project provides books to all children from birth until five years old, and parents can even sign up before their child is born. The new program begins today, and Child says that within the first hour, over 200 families have already signed up for the new program. But don't worry, books aren't running out anytime soon. Childs says that there is no deadline to sign up and that everyone who does sign up will be able to get their monthly books. The program is currently only open to residents of Dane County and parents can register for the program on the Madison Reading Project website. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuckyhout.
As we noted a few minutes ago, today was quite busy at the Wisconsin Capitol. Among the many items of legislation taken up by the State Senate and Assembly are a bill expanding the definition of a riot and another bill making it a crime to threaten a public official. WRIT reporter Heron Splinter followed these bills today. Wisconsin does not currently have a legal definition of a riot. The first bill aims to change that by saying a riot occurs when a group of three or more people go from appearing to become violent to actually becoming violent. Under the bill, it becomes a Class A misdemeanor to start or attend a riot, and it becomes a Class I felony to knowingly participate in a riot that significantly hurts people or property. Senator Van Wangrand, a Republican from Racine, wrote that, quote, This bill is meant to address bad actors that seek to damage property and commit acts of violence. Right now, the Wisconsin Professional Police Association is registered in support of the bill. However, nine other groups are registered in opposition to it. That list includes the City of Milwaukee and the Wisconsin ACLU. Wisconsin ACLU Deputy Executive Director Shadi Ali is worried about the growing number of what he says are anti-protest bills. Uh, this really should be seen in a larger pattern of, of some of these uh, you know, other legal developments. So you can take a look at uh, the developments in enhanced penalties for students at UW campuses who protest uh, on-campus speakers. You can look at uh, critical infrastructure law, which increases penalties for uh, protesters that are trespassing on power line and pipeline rights of way that have been subject to protests. I mean, it, it, this really is another tool in that toolbox that is growing at a really disturbing clip. This bill passed both the Senate and Assembly today. Similar bills expanding the definition of a riot have been passed or are pending in more than a dozen other states. A related bill in the Senate today is about violence against public officers. This Senate bill makes it a felony to threaten a public officer or their family members. Senator Dan Fine, a Republican from Fond du Lac, explains the bill. Threats to public officials are usually extremely violent and oftentimes precede actual harm. Because of this, the threat should be penalized just as readily as actual bodily harm. Senator Fine says the bill would prevent violence against public officials by making it punishable by an I-class felony, a conviction that carries a maximum sentence of three and a half years in prison. The bill does not have any registered opposition. The Wisconsin Professional Police Association is the sole group registered in favor. That bill passed the Senate today with 20 votes, 13 opposed. It heads to the State Assembly where it is in committee. For WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
Vice President Kamala Harris was in Milwaukee yesterday to emphasize the need to replace lead pipes in the city and across the nation. While Madison replaced its lead pipes years ago, Milwaukee still has more than 70,000 out of the roughly 170,000 in place around the state. To learn more about the issue, WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout spoke with Robert Penner, a member of the Get Out, Get the Lead Out, a coalition of citizens fighting to remove lead pipe infrastructure in Wisconsin's largest city. Yesterday, Vice President Kamala Harris made a visit to Milwaukee to talk about the Biden administration's plan to remove all lead pipes across the country within the next decade. Milwaukee has been working to remove their own lead pipes for years. And with me today to discuss the problem is Robert Penner, a member of Get the Lead Out, a Milwaukee-based community activist group working to remove all lead from the environment. Robert, thank you so much for talking with me today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Nate. So just to start, how many lead pipes are in Milwaukee, and what are some of the dangers that these pipes pose? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's somewhere between 70 and 74,000 lead laterals left in Milwaukee. So the lateral is the pipe that uh, connects the home to the water main that runs down the center of the street. Um, and, I mean, these, these pipes uh, date back uh, into the 1800s, some of them. Some of them were placed uh, in Milwaukee in the, in the 1870s and 1880s and are still in use today. Um, and lead, uh, well, it was a substance that was widely used, you know, back in the 19th century. Uh, it was quickly discovered that uh, there were uh, many deleterious health effects um, to uh, the consumption of lead and the ingestion of lead through a, a variety of, 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 you know, ways. You know, you can ingest lead through paint, you can ingest lead through water, uh, you can ingest lead uh, through, you know, cookware and pottery um, and through soil as well. Um, but, but lead pipes provide a, or, uh, pose a, a particular threat, uh, specifically because, um, you know, we're consuming water all day, every day. That is our, our main, you know, humans are, humans are water. We are water beings. We, we need water to survive. So we're drinking water every day, all the time, using it to wash our dishes, using it to shower, all that stuff. Um, and what lead does is it essentially it replaces um, proteins in in your body, it takes the place of them. It, it acts as like a false protein, and what and, and so what it, what it does to you know just people, right, regular everyday people is you know it, it makes their immune system weaker. It, it compromises their their bone health, their neurological health as as you age. But it's particularly dangerous for children um, and infants in the womb, prenatal, and pregnant women as well, or pregnant people. Um, so there's, there's a variety of effects that can be had on um, uh, people that are, are pregnant and, and children. Um, it affects their neurological development. Uh, it can cause premature birth. It can cause birth defects. Uh, there's, there's a wide range of effects that it has on children and uh, babies as they're being born. So all of these lead pipes in Milwaukee, what will it take to remove these pipes? Um, well, it's going to take uh, concerted effort. It's going to take the political will, um, and there has not ever been any of that um, in Milwaukee, uh, to put it very lightly. Um, the lead pipes, first of all, uh, I'm a historian. I, I play a role doing historical research for the Get the Lead Out Coalition. Um, and what I've been able to find out uh, through this historical research is actually lead pipes were mandated for use in 1872, uh, under the then mayor who had a uh, business interest in lead mining and lead manufacturing. Um, so he got very rich off of the scheme to mandate that lead pipes 
not only could be used, but that they must be used. So every house, basically, that was built between 1872 and uh, uh, 1950 has lead pipes. And that makes up a, a huge, uh, huge quantity of the housing stock in Milwaukee. Um, you also have houses that were built between 1950 and 1962 that may have lead pipes because lead pipes weren't banned for use until yesterday now what did vice president harris come to milwaukee to say what was her plan well i mean this was part this is part of the the overarching biden infrastructure plan right uh joe biden has pledged and his administration kamala harris etc have pledged to uh replace all the lead pipes in, in the country because you know they're correct in saying that they do pose a major health uh uh you know uh crisis it is a major health crisis to have people drinking out of lead uh lead pipes. So that's what they, they came to pledge that within 10 years, they were going to remove all the lead pipes, right? If the, you know, if that infrastructure bill gets passed. Um, and I mean, I hope it does. I hope this, this money comes and I hope that the city utilizes it correctly to replace the lead pipes. Um, but for, from what we've seen so far, the, the city's been grossly incompetent. Uh, Tom Barrett has been negligent, uh, extremely so. Um, and, you know, I can't imagine whoever the next Milwaukee mayor is going to be is, is going to be a whole lot different, um, particularly if it is uh, Cavalier Johnson that, that wins this mayoral election that's coming up. He's had the same stance as Barrett has, has maintained, uh, that lead pipes aren't a problem and that the real problem is, is lead paint. Um, and so, I mean, I hope, I hope against hope that this money is, is used correctly and that it is used to speed up the process of replacing the pipes and maybe with some federal oversight that will happen. But, I mean, I, 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 like many of the other people in the Get the Let Out Coalition and like many of the people in the community, we lack confidence in, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the politicos in, in Milwaukee. And then we lack confidence in the, the Biden administration that they will follow through on this. So, I mean, I, I think it's good that Kamala Harris came here. Milwaukee is one of the cities with the highest uh, uh, amount of lead pipes. Uh, that are still in use. Uh, there's been a lot of activism around this issue in Milwaukee, and, and rightly so. And I think that's probably why they came here, um, because there's been so much happening around it in Milwaukee. Um, but, I mean, you know, it's, it's a trust issue, right? We, we have no reason to put our trust in, in these political institutions who make these kind of, you know, grand proclamations about what they're going to do. Um, so, I mean, show us, I guess. Show us that you're serious and, and actually remove the pipes. So, Robert, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us today? Surely. I mean, you know, the, the science is, is clear, right? The, the, you can look at the work of, of Dr. Yano Lembrinidou, um, of Dr. Mark Edwards, of uh, Dr. Del Torre, 
And, and the science is clear that, that leaded water is a problem. Um, and that it's not only a problem in terms of, oh, you know, we're poisoning um, um, people, you know, but, you know, we can, you know, fix them through chelation therapy. But this is a long-term thing. This is a long-term health effect that, that it has on, um, you know, uh, the, the next several or the last several and probably the next several generations of, of children being born in Milwaukee. You know, this isn't something that's just like, oh, they got sick and then we got a bed. No, I mean, this affects your neurological functioning. So this affects things like schools, right? This affects, you know, kids' ability to function in, in society, uh, you know, to, to be able to go into school and, and learn and get good grades. This affects their ability to go out and get jobs, you know. Um, so it really, what we see is, is a very vicious cycle, and it's, it's obviously racialized, too. The majority of the lead pipes aren't in those, the areas uh, uh, of Milwaukee that have uh, high white populations. Most of those pipes have been removed. Um, another thing that I do want to mention real briefly is that the Get the Let Out Coalition is also um, running a uh, Clean Water for Pregnant People program. Uh, people can sign up on our website, leadfreemke.com, um, and uh, there's a sign-up form there. And if, you are, if you're a pregnant person, uh, you can get free water delivered to your house if you have lead, lead laterals. Uh, because we think this is too important of, an, of, a, of a situation to, to not do anything, to not take action. So we've partnered with uh, a nonprofit organization called Can Water Kids to set up this program, and we will literally deliver uh, eight racks of water to your door uh, every month for 12 months uh, if you're pregnant. Um, and we're, I mean, this is this is more than the city's been willing to do. This is more than you know any of the NGOs and nonprofits that have, have said that their water activists have been willing to do. Um, you know, so it's gonna it's, it's really gonna take community action. Uh, to accomplish anything is, is, is what we've seen. And that's what we're aiming to do is to get the Let Out Coalition. I've been speaking with Robert Penner with Get the Let Out. Robert, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for reaching out, Nate. And uh, available anytime. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call explains why there are calls for in-person classes to be halted at UW-Madison. Wildlife Weekly discusses the different diseases that affect snakes and turtles. And Radio Astronomy considers cows that are out of this world. But now we'll take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. It's now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. With classes back in session, host Hope Carnop is joined by Jessica Sunkin to discuss what the UW is doing to respond to COVID-19 in the new semester. What we all could only hope for is what we consider a normal college experience full of in-person activities and getting to meet a bunch of new people. Um, We're all here from different places at this fabulous campus. 
Hello and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. Today marks the start of the spring semester at UW-Madison. This is now the fifth semester that has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, and uncertainty still looms. The university is moving forward with in-person classes, and a mass mandate remains in place until at least March 1st. On Monday, the Teaching Assistance Association, known as the TAA, ASM Student Government, and the UW-BIPOC Coalition went to Chancellor Rebecca Blank's office in Baskin Hall. They demanded a switch to remote learning for the first two weeks of the semester. Anything that happens at the university, especially with the pandemic, is going to directly impact the Madison community. Um, From the partners and spouses and families of the people at the university, um, any of whom have immunocompromised loved ones, Um, the continued increase in cases and then hospitalizations is going to directly affect every member of the Madison community in terms of what we are able to do safely. The Dean of Students said the TAA will receive a written response by the end of the week. Today I'm joined by our news manager, Jessica Sonkin, to explain what COVID measures are in place and to provide a preview of what to expect this spring semester. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jessica. Of course, I'm excited to be here. So by the time everyone is hearing this, we have just finished our first day of classes. How are you feeling about starting a new semester? I'm excited. I think a new semester is a great opportunity to start fresh in terms of your course load and in terms of any extracurriculars you want to get involved in. It's a time to meet new people and to embrace all that Madison has to offer. How are the majority of classes being offered this semester and how have people been responding to that? Uh, The majority of classes are still going to be held in person. The university is just going to require that everyone wears masks in university buildings up until March 1st at the earliest as of right now. That's subject to be extended. However, some student groups and coalitions don't necessarily believe that in-person classes are the safest option as of right now. Even though, you know, negotiations might not, we might not get 100% what we want, it's it's frustrating because we weren't involved in the negotiations at all. Or it doesn't feel like those shared governance principles are being recognized if decisions are being made without providing students the opportunity to give feedback or without students in the room being involved in those decisions. It's still a conversation to be had. However, the university is going through with mostly in-person instruction and students will be able to be in the classrooms this semester. One big change this semester is how UW is offering testing. What was the university recommending as students return to campus and what are their plans for testing going forward? Yeah, so the university is recommending that all students test once before arriving in Dane County and once after arriving to campus, assuming the initial test was negative. Um, They are offering testing options for students once they get on campus. These options are either a take-home rapid antigen test or PCR testing at the University Club, which is the on-campus testing location for right now. Um, The antigen tests provide results within about 15 minutes, which is why the university says they're a bit more accessible and easy for students to acquire since there are pickup locations at the unions. 
but they are not requiring these tests because there's no documentation is going to be needed in order for students to assume their regular activities. However, um, students who are not fully vaccinated will need to continue their mandatory testing throughout the semester. Yeah, moving away from the current COVID situation on campus, what other stories do you anticipate that the Cardinal News team will be covering in the near future? Well, the Cardinal News team is going to stick to a normal agenda of making sure that we're covering all of the breaking news going on in Wisconsin. We're going to be making sure we're following up on politics and any updates to fun campus life activities or unfortunately, maybe not so fun activities. We want to really encompass every aspect of the student experience through our reporting this semester. We're also very excited to be celebrating our 130th anniversary this spring. So we're going to be documenting a lot of information about Cardinal alumni, about how the Daily Cardinal has led its influence over the years. And we're really excited to share those stories with you as well. Yeah, is there anything else you're specifically excited about for this semester, either at the Cardinal or otherwise? I'm excited to meet the new editors at the Cardinal, and I am excited to hopefully have a full spring here with in-person classes. Do you have any other thoughts about starting a new semester and how you think things might play out with COVID? Um, I hope that everyone is safe, responsible, and considerate of one another because what we all could only hope for is what we consider a normal college experience full of in-person activities and getting to meet a bunch of new people. Um, we're all here from different places at this fabulous campus, which is time and time again acknowledged for being one of the best places to go to school in terms of environment. And I hope everyone gets to experience it in their own unique way by exploring their passions and just discovering more about themselves. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> In other campus news, Milwaukee attorney Jay Rothman is the next president of the UW system. He is scheduled to begin the role on June 1st. Former interim president Tommy Thompson is scheduled to leave the role in March. Rothman does not have experience within higher education. Another finalist, Jim Schmidt, is the chancellor of UW-Eau Claire. Rothman said in a statement that he is humbled by the opportunity and called the UW system the state's crown jewel. Faculty groups have taken issue that a public forum was not held, the Wisconsin State Journal reported. At UW-Madison, the search for the next chancellor is also moving ahead. A website has been launched that includes a search timeline, a description of the application process, and a schedule for listening sessions. According to the timeline, finalists will be publicly announced in April. The announcement of the next chancellor will occur in May, with a start date in the summer or fall. You can view the listening session schedule and more information at chancellorsearch.wisc.edu. UW-Madison and its athletic department have banned a fan from UW Athletics events after a viral TikTok showed him making a racist gesture at a basketball game. The attendee showed his middle finger and made an anti-Asian eye gesture toward the Northwestern student section. About a quarter of Northwestern's first-year class identifies as Asian-American. He was approached by a Northwestern employee and escorted from the game by a police officer. 
Chancellor Rebecca Blank and Athletics Director Chris McIntosh said the attendee was not a UW-Madison student or employee and condemned the actions in a statement. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explores the different diseases that affect reptiles, like snakes and turtles, and explains what can be done to treat them. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about two different, very significant diseases that are found here in our animals in Wisconsin, and two of which we actually have in care at our wildlife center right now this winter. So two of these diseases are really harmful to the species that they affect. And right now we have multiple species that actually have these conditions. So the first one is an eastern milk snake. And this eastern milk snake was actually found outside of Dane County, but in a county where this particular disease is found already. So the disease I want to talk about first is snake fungal disease. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever seen a snake or even a snake that has fungal disease, but it's really important that you know the signs and symptoms just because it really is an emerging disease that has been around since it was first reported in 2006 and 2008. But there are so many different types of snakes that are impacted by this disease, and some are more frequently reported than others, and milk snakes happens to be one of those. So it is a fungus. I'm not going to try to sound out what the fungus name is, but the presence of that fungus uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it'll have any sort of symptoms um, on the skin of a snake, but it can be uh, performed or identified through a PCR test that is done, which could just be a simple skin swab. So taking a swab and then putting that on the skin and then running that through uh, some fancy genetic testing to find if there is any presence of snake fungal disease. Now, how do you know if the snake that you found maybe has this disease? Well, the most common symptoms are going to be crusty scabs that are on the surface of the skin. And it's usually a pretty yellow amber color. And our milk snake that we have in rehabilitation right now had just that. So the face and the right side of the eye, kind of along the neck, and then also on the left side of the face, in addition to about four or five other spots along the back and under the belly were these really kind of thick raised yellow lesions. And so the first thing we thought of was, oh, it's snake fungal disease probably. And we're in the process of working with our veterinarians to see if we want to test to get a confirmed diagnosis, but it sure looks like snake fungal disease based on uh, what we have comparisons for through the DNR website, uh, which they do have some great documents. So highly recommend if you're ever interested in seeing what snake fungal disease looks like, go 
to dnr.wisconsin.gov. So what other species of snakes can develop this disease? It's not just milk snakes, but we definitely have found it in, and not we, meaning the DNR, uh, Wisconsin folks, uh, biologists, etc., researchers. They have found it on timber rattlesnakes. They have also found it on western fox snakes. And those are the ones that have the most like clinical signs besides milk snakes here in Wisconsin. And, but it is definitely a threat to other snakes because we know that it can be spread. It doesn't seem like it's to the detriment of snake populations, though. We seem to find cases of it every once in a while, and really it's not been many here at our center at, at Dane County Humane Society. But, you know, if snake populations were declining, hopefully we would have a little bit more information about that. And we might see more snakes uh, dying in a certain area or region, and we'd probably have a lot more reports coming in that would suggest that it is uh, truly affecting a certain species and their ability to even survive in the environment. Of course, the one snake that we think of most uh, here in our area, uh, besides the timber rattler, is going to be the eastern Massasauga snake, which is, you know, there's very, very, very few left here in Wisconsin, a very small pocket of those. And so that's something that, you know, with a disease that is so highly pathogenic, we worry about those threatened and endangered species here in our state if they were to get it. Okay, so that was snake fungal disease, and our milk snake right now is uh, in the process of being housed and treated and really just have to be able to get through this with the next sheds that the snake uh, will hopefully receive in full quarantine and is definitely going to be in a separate space away from other snakes so that we don't risk potentially giving them anything related to snake fungal disease. The second disease that I wanted to highlight for today is metabolic bone disease. Now, we have talked about it before because it's something that we always are concerned about with any wild animal that comes to the Wildlife Center. But in particular, I wanted to talk about two of our little turtle friends that have uh, come into us recently. Uh, I like to call them friends just because it's kind of an easy thing. I picked it up a while ago where, you know, they're, they're our friends in the wild, but these were kept as pets. Um, so they were someone's friend for quite a while. Unfortunately, these two particular turtles uh, found from the wild, they were painted turtles, they were kept for long enough that they developed, unfortunately, metabolic bone disease in care of the public. And it's not something that everybody really thinks about, but it's... Uh, it's something to consider if you are finding turtles out in the wild and thinking, oh, I really want to keep one as a pet. Uh, we encourage folks to maybe look at doing um, a rescue from a reptile group or potentially instead of taking from the wild, go to your local humane society, adopt a red-eared slider, you know, something else that's not going to affect a wild population or a wild turtle. Because these two little ones, uh, they were found as hatchlings, so they were only the size of a quarter when they were found. But over the years, having a diet uh, that probably was not balanced quite correctly has caused them to really decline in, in their ability to even grow and thrive in captivity. So metabolic bone disease is really just an improper balance of calcium and phosphorus ratios in the body. And calcium is so incredibly vital to any living being. Uh, but specifically with turtles, when you think of their shells, they're made of you know, calcium, right? And so if you don't have enough calcium, then you're going to have a deficiency and you're going to have uh, problems with your shell. So in the case of these turtles, they actually have a number of problems already visible. Uh, for example, their shell is upturned. And so instead of a shell curving in that nice C shape and it's curved downwards, a nice round carapace, which is the top of a turtle, we actually see that they are flared up. It kind of reminds me of when you put your contacts in and it flares upside down or it's the wrong side, the wrong end is being put into your eye where it gets that little flare up. So it's, it's almost kind of pretty, but it's also really sad when we see that because we know that metabolic bone disease is probably the cause. 
So it's not just the shell deficiencies, right? Uh, metabolic bone disease can cause so many other problems. They were going to have uh, weakened muscles, like they're not able to swim maybe as well as some other turtles, especially the heart being major cardiac muscle there, because obviously calcium is important in being able to signal to cells about muscle contraction. And there's also uh, less ability for them to form blood clots because calcium levels are, are low. And so maybe they will run into problems with their, their heartbeat and maybe they'll go into cardiac failure. So these turtles, um, because they, at multiple years, uh, being in, in a different type of setup with um, probably not enough calcium, um, are uh, really lacking bone density. And we could see that on x-rays for these turtles. And we don't know if it is something that really will successfully, you know, recover for these turtles. It's, it's not something that just overnight they, you know, give them some calcium and then whoo, their bones are better. Um, it's going to take a long time in care and we're not sure if it's actually going to be successful. So calcium in their diet is probably the most important way that they're going to get that. So of course we're adding extra floating calcium in their water. We're giving them calcium supplements orally every day, but also also to help increase vitamin D. So when we see the turtles come in that have metabolic bone disease, we're seeing um, those upturned shells, uh, usually a lot of swelling or edema in the, the skin areas around where their legs and their arms kind of meet the shell. Sometimes their spine is arched, and then uh, a lot of times their jaw might be really soft. They might have soft spots on their shells themselves, and uh, they generally could have things like tremors um, or twitchy movements because of the calcium lacking meaning, again, the muscle problems that they're having. So they might not be able to grip very well, move very well. Uh, they might be really tired and they could easily fracture bones. So those are things that we are seeing when we get something like that admitted to our wildlife center. And most often, uh, again, in this particular case, it's just because of not having the right uh, setup for the turtle appropriate for the species that they are being housed. So we we are a wildlife center that, you know, our goal is to rehabilitate and release animals. And those animals we hope would be wild and go back into the natural habitat uh, environment as healthy and successful individuals. But in these particular cases, these two turtles, you know, it might be a life in captivity, but it might also not be a really great life. Like releasing them doesn't feel really good now. But if we had gotten those turtles as little hatchling, then we might have been actually able to rehabilitate them and set them free. And that would have been the best thing that we could have done. So those are the two biggest diseases that I wanted to talk about today, just because they're relevant and because we're treating patients that have them. Something to think about, um, again, encouraging adoption versus taking any animals from the wild, even though we know that snakes and turtles, you know, many of them can be kept. There is no legal restriction to have them unless they're endangered or threatened or they're at the limit of how many that you can have. But it's definitely a, a full-time job and you want to give animals the best care possible. And we feel the same way. So uh, hopefully this was an informative seg segment talking about snake fungal disease and metabolic bone disease. And uh, we appreciate you listening here on WORT. So if you ever have any questions about wildlife, wildlife rehabilitation, or what we do at the Dane County Humane Society, definitely give us a call at 608-287-3235 or visit the website at www.giveshelter.org. And thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly.
It's now 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Did you know that you can find cows in space? Cow supernovas, that is. On this week's Radio Astronomy, feature contributor Rourke Habegger shares the story of these bovines in the sky. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. This week, we are going to talk about cow events. You do not have cheese curds in your ears. I did just say cow events. Back in 2018, astronomers discovered a super bright supernova, which did not stay bright for as long as other supernovae. This supernova got the name AT2018COW, cow. The final three letters are randomly generated and astronomers took to calling it a cow event. They started seeing other supernova with similar optical properties. Most recently, the supernova AT2020MRF joined this new class of cow supernova. It was particularly interesting because it was emitting a lot of x-rays, even more than the other cow supernovae. So clearly this cow naming was convenient for a special kind of supernova, but let's learn what makes these events special. The X-ray observations of AT2020MRF have added support to the initial idea that cow supernovae are powered by an engine. Not like the engine in your car, but what astronomers call a compact central engine. Central is pretty easy to describe. There is something in the center of the supernova, something left behind from when the star exploded. But compact deserves some explanation. Compact objects are the category of astrophysics objects which are really dense. Our sun is a dense plasma, but compact objects make our sun look like a thin, wispy cloud. For example, black holes, neutron stars, and white dwarf stars are all compact objects. A spoonful of a neutron star would weigh as much as Mount Everest, over a billion tons. By comparison, a spoonful of the sun's core would weigh about a pound. That's what makes compact objects so different from normal stars. Of course, those densities are difficult to visualize and understand here on Earth. However, astronomers are able to observe the interaction of these amazing objects with the gas around them. Additionally, white dwarf stars and neutron stars actually emit observable light themselves. Getting back to cow events, this observable light of gas interacting with a compact object is likely what makes the observed emission what it is. If there is a compact object left behind by the collapsing star, then that object should accrete material left around after the supernova. In most cases, the remnant should be a neutron star or a black hole, and the accretion processes for those objects, while different, both can produce X-ray emission like that observed in cow events, in particular, this most recent cow event, AT2020MRF. While there have only been five identified cow events, the compact central engine theory is the best explanation so far. Ideally, we will observe more and develop a much better understanding of these events. Additionally, the recent paper about the new cow event details how if this compact central engine theory is accurate, then observing more cows will also provide observational constraints on the formation of these compact objects. We'll get to study how the black holes and neutron stars form after a supernova. We hope you've enjoyed this news, or moves, about cow events. 
Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Aaron Spinter. Your headline writer was Sophie Lee. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal, with tape from WRT's Greg Jaboski. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produces newscast. And Charlie Pittman as the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful, up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.